out of the flowers I don't have one single rose On the Wing, Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., where you will hear the latest releases in folk, rock, world, jazz, and much more. Only on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Support for Talk the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online around the world at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, a major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. This morning, we're going to look at an old idea turned new. Growing food and selling it locally has many benefits to producers and consumers, but we're going to talk about adding locally caught fish to the recipe. Um, our guests in the studio are Aaron Doherty from Penobscot East Resource Center in Stonington and Bob St. Peter of Food for Maine's Future. We'll also be joined a little later by Will Hopkins of the Cobbs Cook Bay Resource Center. And as, as always, your questions and insights um, will help with our dialogue this morning, and we'll invite you to call a little bit later in the program. But first of all, let's welcome our guests, um, uh, Bob St. Peter. Welcome to uh, Talk of the Towns. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Bob, tell us a little bit about um, yourself and uh, your organization, Food for Maine's Future. Well, uh, I'll start with the organization. Uh, we're a statewide food and farm advocacy organization. Um, a little closer. Yep. Sure thing. Uh, and uh, we are a, a voice here in Maine for the international movement for food sovereignty. Uh, our mission is to build a just, secure, sustainable, and democratic food system. Uh, we work on food policy issues, but we also work a lot on, on grassroots organizing and bringing people together to uh, build a better, uh, more nourishing food system for everybody. Uh, personally, I'm a, a seasonal farm worker um, trying to uh, access some land so I can start a farm business on my own uh, and have been uh, doing this work uh, in my local community for about, uh, I think, eight years now. Mm, great, great. We'll come back to the to the question of what's food sovereignty. That's okay. an interesting question. Sure thing. Um, Aaron Doherty, welcome back. Um, Aaron is with the Penobscot East Resource Center. A little bit of background about yourself and, and Penobscot East. Sure. Good morning, and uh, thanks for having me. 
So Penobscot East Resource Center is located in Stonington, and our work is to secure a future for fishing communities in eastern Maine between the islands of Penobscot Bay and Canada. And we do that a number of different ways, including um, working with fishermen to build fishing uh, alliances in their communities, and also uh, the Downeast Ground Fish Initiative, which is a project that I'm directing, working to rebuild a small-scale, part-time, uh, sustainable ground fishery in the region and trying to get that to return to the area as another opportunity for fishermen. Great. We'll find out a little bit why that hasn't been the case in the recent past and mm-hmm. why we may be able to bring it back. Um, and a bit about yourself, Aaron, how did you get started in this work? Yeah, I've, I've been involved for about three years and I, I just got started because I was um, I had some experience working with uh, not fisheries, but other natural resource issues, forestry, and just looking at the communities in eastern Maine, getting to know the, the communities, getting to know the fishermen and the other people that I worked with. Um, I just saw a lot of opportunity to really uh, bring people together and, and focus on community-based fisheries management and to find some long-term solutions that would um, protect not just the resource, but also the, also the, the individuals, the mm-hmm. people in the communities as well. Well, it used to be all community-supported agriculture and fisheries. Um, All of these were very local enterprises. And yes, they had markets um, elsewhere, but they were primarily serving um, local people um, when agriculture or fisheries got started in Maine. I guess the main codfish, though, um, that went to Europe um, as a dried product when when settlers were first here. But after that, um, a lot of locally uh, caught fish and Mm -hmm. consumed fish um, and and produce. Um, We'll start with Bob and, and maybe talk a little bit about what food sovereignty means, and then where did this kind of um, movement to relocate agriculture back to the local level, where did that start? Uh, Well, um, food sovereignty really is a a political and uh, social framework Mm. for how we create the rules uh, governing our food system. Uh, Food sovereignty uh, assumes that people on the ground in the communities know what's best for them. Uh, and if they have access to the resources uh, and uh, fair distribution models, can care for themselves. Uh, after World War II, uh, we had a shift away from what was the de facto food sovereignty, where people were producing the food in their own communities, selling it to their neighbors, and as you said, uh, exporting um, surplus. Um, but following World War II, we underwent a radical shift in the, in the food system, um, Farms became more industrialized and chemicalized, centralized, and mechanized. Uh, and what this did was uh, it, it took out the, the need for lots of hands and labor on farms uh, in rural communities. Uh, and so we had this uh, rural exodus because the farming, uh, as it were, became so efficient that people were no longer needed. Uh, and as that sort of uh, economic framework of rural communities began to break down, um, people left the cities, uh, and food over the last six, seven decades uh, has become increasingly uh, nutrient uh, deficient because soils have been run out. Um, we have, you know, we still have in the world a billion people who are hungry. Uh, we have uh, health-related issues that can be traced back to food. So we've really had a, a shift in, in how we do food over the last. 60 plus years. Uh, and just 40 years ago, you know, the, the stated USDA policy was for farmers in the US was get big or get out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of farmers got, some farmers got big, a lot more farmers got out. Uh, and I, I think about a decade or so ago, when the idea of 
of fresh local food and became uh, mainstream, if it were, uh, became people like Michael Paul and uh, Barbara King Solver wrote these great books and really piqued people's interest in, uh, in uh, good food, local food, and I think it tugged at people's heartstrings a bit in, in terms of the, the nostalgia that people feel for an older way of life, which if you talk to old timers, they'll probably tell you it was a better way of life mm. for some. Mm. Uh, so this movement, I think, comes at a convergence of recognizing that the current food system we have is, is broken and that production, that the large-scale industrialized and chemicalized production has a lot of negative consequences. And we can see that clearly. Uh, and our communities, rural communities, have been depopulated uh, in Maine, around the U.S., around the world. Uh, and so people are looking for uh, good food. They're looking for community connections. They're looking to see vibrant rural communities, um, strong local economies. And food has, in the past, produced all these and can produce all these again. Mm. I can think of uh, Wendell Berry as a, as a writer, both in fiction and in his, his essays. He's probably the most articulate um, spokesperson for what you're talking about. He just he knows it in his bones. <laughs> yes, and he has said that if, if you truly want to build local, durable economies, you start with food mm. because we have those accesses, we have those resources available to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just have to figure out a way to get access to them and make them productive and make it so that the people who are producing the food can earn a fair price and make a, a living off of doing that. Mm. And how is Maine kind of positioned for this? Um, it seems as though um, it, along the coast, um, people are thinking about this, and there are pro- probably some local markets, especially with uh, seasonal tourism, that um, produces kind of a, 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 um, the ability to do this. How is Maine produce, producing overall? Well, uh, you know, I've had the chance to travel quite a bit the last year with my work, and I've seen different food systems around the country and, uh, and internationally. And, and I think Maine is, is positioned as well as any region uh, to, to, be, to increase its, its food self-sufficiency. And Maine has a thriving agricultural sector. We produce enough calories to feed ourselves, but those calories are largely in dairy and potatoes and, uh, and other commodities. So um, we have a lot of the infrastructure in terms of of small-scale producers. Uh, a lot of credit goes to Mafka um, and the, the folks who came here in the 70s mm-hmm. and, and kind of set the stage for us now 35, 40 years later uh, who are trying to rebuild, you know, to build upon what they started. Uh, and that started with people starting farms and building local markets. And uh, we have that, and, and not a lot of places have those. They're still trying to, to claw their way out of the... Um, the devastation that that the last 60 years has brought Mm -hmm. to rural communities. Well, let's get a a kind of a fishery side because I think these things are are very much tied together. Aaron, tell us a little bit about um, how kind of the fisheries have have, uh, developed for more than 30 years. Uh, People have gotten used to the fact that most of the fish that we might see in a supermarket and buy for ourselves Mm -hmm. goes to Boston or perhaps Portland first and then comes back to us. That seems crazy. (laughs) It does. It does. Um, You know, years ago, um, and, and not really that many years ago, uh, fishermen would be able to, uh, to count on going out and, and catching a mixed catch, whether it's uh, lobsters or ground fish or scallops or shrimp and a variety of other things that uh, varied with the seasons. And that could sustain a local economy because it was diversified and um, it, it could sustain a local population as well with people being able to buy fish either from a, a fish market or off the dock. If you know your, you know, know some of your local fishermen, um, then it's, it certainly was easier to get seafood. 
Um, as the years went by, I think that um, the issue of scale that Bob was talking about played into fisheries as well. Certainly there was an emphasis towards um, bigger is better, uh, large scale um, was certainly the way that, that a number of fisheries went and are still going. And as the, the, the issue of scale came into play and as um, fishermen became specialized rather than having that diversity, they were either lobster fishermen or ground fishermen or scallopers. And you see this up and down the coast. We, we began to lose um, the opportunity to, to have that uh, diversification. We lost ground fish. So if you, if you look at fish, we no longer have cod, haddock, flounders, um, redfish, other fish like that coming across the docks anywhere in eastern Maine anymore. The, the whole, this whole half of the state between Penobscot Bay and Canada is more than 90% dependent on lobster. And so we're looking at ways that we can try to, um, uh, looking towards the future, you know, will we be able to, to diversify? How can we do that? And, uh, and we're taking some steps in that direction. So, And part of the reason for that is that fishermen, because they in, had government-supported policies to buy bigger and more efficient boats, they caught a lot of fish. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this this region hasn't been very productive. It hasn't been productive the way that it was historically for years. And part of the reason that there haven't been many fishermen catching ground fish here the way there used to be for, for at least 15 years is because the inshore areas, um, the, the, the shallower regions closer to shore have been pretty depleted. And so um, people got out of ground fishing and went into other fisheries or they stopped fishing altogether. In addition to that, um, those regulations that were intended to reduce the catch overall um, had a lot of unintended consequences. And um, a lot of it uh, through the years ended up uh, costing fishermen their access to the fishery. So we're in this um, vicious cycle where when there were not fish to catch and fishermen were not going out fishing because there's nothing to catch. Um, those were the years that were selected to give people fishing rights in the future. And so now that's why the, this region here has very little fishing rights to work with. Um, and in a little while, we can talk about what we're trying to do with that. We're taking what little we have here and, and rebuilding with that. Mm. So it's it, again, the parallels to me anyway seem um, great because um, in agriculture, people specialized and then they lost the ability to diversify. In fishing, it was the same thing. And that was um, aggravated by the federal policies, which were trying to restore stocks. And, and right. that restricted the ability to be diverse. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. And, and once you become specialized and you lose that diversity, I think it's so much harder to go back and try to rebuild diversity into the system again. And um, and, and really, I think the opportunity to actually do that starts at the, at the small scale at the local level. Mm. So um, as, as either of you um, start with, with Aaron first, what would you imagine being the kind of the, the community of the future along the coast thinking about fish uh, uh, fishing? Yeah. Well, uh, these communities in Hancock and Washington counties are the most, literally the most fishery dependent uh, communities in, I believe it's the East Coast. And, um, and right now, as I mentioned, that's lobster, but in the future, I, I really would foresee opportunities to catch a variety of different um, species in a, a system of uh, ecosystem management and um, a finer scale area management that is really a cooperation between local fishermen who know the resource, who have accountability, 
in other words, if they overfish um, and, a, and a region is fished out, local fishermen pay the consequences, whereas uh, federal regulators that are managing at a distance um, have an incentive, but they don't have the same incentive. They don't have the local accountability. So what we really need is these um, local partnerships between fishermen in this region and the federal regulators at the national mm -hmm. level. So one of the differences is that we're dealing with a, a public resource, fish Absolutely. are a public resource, and they're managed at the both federal, state, and sometimes at, talking about clams at the local level. Right. In terms of agriculture, we're talking about um, a, a private resource. And so there's different, uh, different kind of management strategies. But, Bob, you're describing communities in the future that would be that vibrant community that have, would have the diversity of, of food stocks coming into the, into the area or being produced in the area, whether fish or agricultural products. Um, talk about the vision that you have about uh, what the future could look like. Well, uh, we uh, published a newspaper called Saving Seeds, and I interviewed f uh, a, f a local farmer um, for that paper uh, last fall. And you know, he said that e even though he technically owns the farm where he lives, it's a community resource, mm. and that he saw himself more as a steward mm -hmm. of the land. And, and I think that's, that's where the, the, the private nature of agriculture um, begins to, to break down for the good of the community, mm -hmm. is when people recognize that land like the oceans uh, is, a, is a common resource because ultimately we all depend on that. Uh, and so what goes on in farms uh, is partly uh, community in involved or should be community involved um, to ensure that, that the people who are on the land are able to uh, make a fair price so that they can uh, care for the land in a way that, that benefits not just them and the community immediately, but for generations. And uh, so I think as far as a vision, it's more people producing food um, at, uh, from the ground or harvesting from the sea, uh, and then an economy and an infrastructure in place that, gets, that keeps that food in the, in the community first uh, and uh, allows people to do all kinds of economic activity in that supply chain, mm -hmm. processing, distribution, storage, cooking, mm -hmm. those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, a dollar produced on a farm produces $7 in the economy. Mm -hmm. And if we can keep those $7 in our community, then we're a lot better off than, than otherwise. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the same could be said with, with fish. Absolutely. I'm sure that multiplier is, is comparable in fisheries. You know, it's, it's the, uh, the local boat builder. It's, you know, it's the bank providing some of the, the financing for the operation. It's the bait supply. It's the people that work on the docks. It's the co-op. There's that whole chain. And, and um, in many fisheries, again, just going back to that loss of diversity, we've also lost the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so that it's comparable in fisheries um, as well. We Just, you know, the other day I was um, trying to plan for the summer, thinking through all of the steps of catching the fish and landing them and selling them and so forth. And a major piece that's missing right now is ice. In the summertime, you can't just leave fish on the boat and, and bring them ashore and expect it to, to still be a fresh product when it goes to market. It, it needs to be sitting on ice. Well, no one east of Rockland is producing any volume of ice right now that can be used in fisheries. So um, that's an example of, of the infrastructure that we've lost, and there's a, there's a lot of other examples along the way too. And yet we, we know if we go back historically, the 1880s through the 19. 
20s, <laughs> lots of ice was produced right on these ponds out here. People mm-hmm. would salt them away in, in sawdust and, and keep them for summer. So there's another industry that might be possible without uh, uh, too much uh, stretch. You're listening to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're talking about producing, fishing, and buying local. What are the benefits to local communities? In the studio with us, we have Aaron Doherty of Penobscot East Resource Center, Bob St. Peter of Food for Maine's Future, and we'll be joined shortly by Will Hopkins of Copscook Bay Resource Center. Um, um, let me get um, some sense from Bob first, though. Um, what are we doing? W- what are the efforts that we're uh, engaged in that is trying to rebuild these local food systems? What kinds of examples can you point to that says these are things that we're doing to kind of rebuild that, that local food um, security? Well, I think there's a lot of support for new farmers and, and young farmers. Um, there are uh, you know, folks like, like Mothka and, and uh, to an extent, the, de- the Department of Agriculture who are trying to get people producing food, uh, get them on the land, uh, and doing so in a way that, that is economically viable for them. And the, so investing in people uh, is, is happening. That's probably the most crucial thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also see projects popping up, infrastructure projects popping up around the state. There's a, a grist mill in Skowhegan. Uh, there's a, a fish processing center um, that uh, Port Clyde folks have set up. And you know, so we see some of these things bubbling up, entrepreneurs and groups of people taking it upon themselves. Um, but I think o- overall, there's just a lot of energy to create uh, viable mechanisms for people to produce food and process food. Pro- produce and, and get it to local and markets. So and the, the, yeah. the uh, um, community-supported agriculture is an example that we'll be talking about because it, it uh, uh, um, relates to fisheries as well. But community-supported agriculture says, let's make a direct connection between the producer and the consumer. So they have a relationship and um, – you know, that's where the food comes from. We right. know where the food comes from. It comes from the farmer that we've paid money for in advance. Yeah. Are, there, are there examples of, of that sort? Um, well, the growth of farmers' markets certainly okay. yeah. is uh, indicative of people's interest in, in direct marketing, supporting local farms, uh, the ro- growth in CSAs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, you know, there's been some talk about the, uh, the federal level of investing in community banks, and you know, the uh, assumption is that that, community, uh, that investment in community banks can trickle down into the food system. Uh, so there's the, the possibility for more, more investment uh, and more effort there. I think there's, there's a, lot of, uh, dis- a lot of groups of people around the state, and I've talked to a lot of them, who are doing great things in their communities, creating wonderful examples and models. And so I'm optimistic in that the energy is there. Uh, we just have to figure out a way to, to, to um, fund it and, and make it sustainable uh, and give people the, the resources they need to make these things really long-lasting institutions. Mm. Well, let's go now to Will Hopkins. Welcome uh, to Talk of the Towns, Will. Good morning. Um, Will is with the Cook Bay Resource Center down in um, Eastport. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, the, the uh, Resource Center. You've been there a number of years. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, the center and your, your own background. Well, we founded the Resource Center in 1998 with the um, intention to try to monitor and understand what was going on in Cobbscook Bay and then to use that understanding for economic development of the Bay's renewable resources. So obviously that led us into the thick of uh, fisheries politics and fisheries management issues and fisheries science. Um, So we have a lot in common Mm. with um, Aaron and the Penobscot East Resource Center. and we try to uh, work as, as they do to create a future for, for Maine coastal communities in fishing. And um, uh, down here we have really not as many 
as many lobsters or as many lobster dollars or as many um, lobster boats as uh, the rest of the coast of Maine has. In Cubs Cook Bay proper, um, scallops are the primary commercial um, seafood product. So over the years, we've worked with this um, Cubs Cook Bay Fishermen's Association to try to protect these local scallop stocks. And um, we've been moderately successful. Um, certainly, we have the last good scallop grounds left in the state of Maine here, um, though there are, thankfully, a number of other places um, where there seem to be a, a recovery or the beginning of a recovery of scallop stocks. But um, uh, one of the things we noticed quite early on was that here we have this premium product. It's a day boat fishery. The guys are going out in the morning and um, um, catching their daily catch limit, which is one of the management measures they put into place here in Cobscook, and uh, landing them um, so that the scallops have been out of the water for only a few hours rather than a few days or even a few weeks. Um, and yet those scallops have been sold into the same marketing and distribution channels as scallops landed in, say, New Bedford, um, where the boats go out for maybe 10 days or, or two weeks at a time before they land. So all of our, all of our work with local food and uh, marketing um, has started from that point where we realized that we had um, a really good, valuable product, and we were just giving away a lot of that value by selling it at boat run prices, and it was simply being commingled with, with um, other scallops that that might be ten days or or two weeks old. Mm. And and um, you couldn't possibly sell all of your scallops in the Eastport or even Washington County. There's just there's more scallops than people would care to eat. Or maybe I should rephrase that that <laughs> they did not care to eat, but not eat um, at one time. Well, well. Um, we've encountered a, a, a strange little thing here, and that is that it's actually somewhat difficult for people in the Cubscook communities to to buy local scallops. And um, we're very very small community, not a big population. It's not really enough of a population here to support a year-round fish market, for example. Mm. And there, and as Aaron has has already noted, there's not much left in the water uh, down here for diversity. So even if we had a f um, population that could support a year-round fish market, there's we don't have the stocks to, to mm -hmm. put, on the, put on the shelves. So um, if somebody, say, living here in Eastport, wants to buy scallops, um, um, they, they can go, and, and um, our local um, independent grocer does a good job of keeping, of keeping seafood on the shelves. Um, but... Most folks who want to um, buy scallops will have to know a fisherman, know roughly what time of day he will come in, be willing to go down to the wharf, whatever the weather is, and buy a gallon of scallops. And for some of us, that, some of us, that's a that's a wonderful way to be as directly connected to our food source as possible, um, and we get a very good product at the, a very good price. But for a lot of folks who um, maybe have moved to um, Eastport more recently and maybe they don't know a scallop fisherman or maybe they don't know when to go down or they don't even want to buy a gallon of scallops. Maybe they don't want nine pounds. They maybe just want a half a pound to, to feed themselves a, a nice little mess.
So um, just we're trying to um, establish a um, marketing co-op and a community kitchen so that we can buy scallops cooperatively and then we can sell them locally um, on a regular um, predictable basis so that someone can come in at the end of the afternoon and buy the scallops they need for supper that night. Plus, we're trying to then develop the markets that we can sell our, our scallops as the premium um, high-end product that they are. And you've, I read the Cobscook, uh, uh, the local paper there, the, the Quality Tides, um, last week, talking about a lot of different kind of local food ventures, including some um, uh, links with farmers markets and, and Eat Local Eastport and, and uh, folks at Tide Mill Organic Farm. Lots of, of uh, people talking about these same issues. Are you seeing crossover between fisheries and, and uh, local agriculture? Yes, indeed. Um, when we first started looking at, at how do we get a better a better price for Cubs cooked scallops, um, one of the first things that sort of stared us in the face was that, you know, for most of us, fish, well, Aaron will understand them, for many of us, fish has to do with fisheries management or fisheries science or the act of catching fish. But for most people, fish are simply food. Mm-hmm. And once we brought our scallops, our fish, into the, the area of food, then it was very, very quickly that we connected with, well, um, how are the other people that produce most of the food in the state, how are they dealing with these issues? And that got us um, taking a look at, at what farmers have done over the last, oh, 30 years um, to, to really improve their distribution. And so we, we've learned a lot of lessons uh, from um, what's been done in, in farming in Maine and um, northern New England. And we, we've looked to um, increase direct sales, um, to sell um, cooperatively, um, adapt to some of the lessons of, of CSAs, of community-supported agriculture, to community-supported fisheries, um, to try to make our products more convenient to buy directly, and um, to overall try to develop a, a deeper understanding of how our local and regional food um, infrastructure works, and, and to understand where the barriers and gaps are and where do we need some processing capability and some distribution capability? So we've, we've learned a huge amount from looking at, the, say, the early efforts of, of, of Tide Mill Farm and other folks who are producing substantial quantities of good food. And, um, and here, try, their big challenge is actually delivering it to, to market. Mm. Let me just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking about producing, fishing, and buying local. What are the benefits to local communities? And on the line with us um, right now is Will Hopkins of the Cobscook Bay Resource Center. In the studio with us are Bob St. Peter of Food for Maine's Future and Aaron Doherty of Penobscot East Resource Center. First of all, I'll ask if any uh, of our guests in the studio, Aaron or Bob, have any comments or, co- or questions for Will. Um, is this making is, is what Will's talking about making sense to you and and uh, what? the crossovers. And if not, then I'll, I'll ask um, Will to, to uh, talk a little bit about the uh, possibility of a shared-use kitchen. But Aaron, I mean, excuse me, Bob? I, I think the, the connection here uh, is that we are going to have to do this together. We're going to have to figure out how those of us who want to buy the food uh, can partner with, uh, with the people who are going to produce the food, and we create those relationships. And uh, if that means uh, coming together to 
uh, you know, cooperatively purchase and, and own a, a processing facility, then that's the direction we need to go. But I think the fundamentally, it's here about building. It's it comes down to building relationships mm. between people, so that we are invested in the people who are producing the food uh, and invested in their success because their success directly relates to uh, our health and well-being. Aaron? And I would just add, um, I guess, more of a comment than a question. Um, Will and I have talked a little bit about this before, but, um, you know, if there's scallops in Cobscook Bay and there's lobsters along the rest of the coast and there's ground fish coming from eastern Maine and Port Clyde, uh, we can certainly share those um, the products between the different regions. And, and that uh, regional cooperation is really important, I think, for a local and uh, uh, regional uh, food economy as well. Mm. Will, tell us a little bit about your exploration of a shared-use kitchen. What might that look like? Well, the, uh, when we first started thinking about bringing scallops in through the door and, um, and then how do we add value, um, the most obvious thing that you can do is um, sell it in a, in a lesser amount. Um, the next obvious thing to do is um, for our scallop season land, uh, lands in December through March, but the buying population isn't here until July, August, September. Um, so to be able to um, freeze those, flash freeze those in some way to maintain their quality and hold them for six or eight months. Um, and to do, to, to do either of those things, you need to have a, a licensed um, processing place. Um, and as soon as we looked at the, at the dollars involved in, in simply putting together such a facility, it became very clear that, boy, we're not going to be landing enough scallops to uh, to support that kind of investment. Um, we need to have a year-round um, um, adding of value mm-hmm. to to local food or creating local food um, in in any facility. Um, simply to carry the cost of the of the facility as well as to um, keep people gainfully employed um, full time. So. Um, we started looking at the idea of, of shared-use kitchens where um, um, anybody who is willing to take the couple-hour training of, of to meet the standards that we need to meet um, to maintain such a kitchen would be able to come in and, and rent the uh, or have access to the kitchen on an hourly or, or um, daily basis to add value to um, whatever their product is. Um, for example, we have talked, you, you'd mentioned Tide Mill, mm. um, and there have been times when Tide Mill has simply produced far more, well, let's say tomatoes, than they can get to market. And um, rather than end up composting those, they would love to be able to turn those into salsa or some other um, value-added product. And um, so the kitchen will be available for that purpose um, if somebody has a recipe, they want to come in, they, they know what they want to do, um, they will be able to um, have access to the kitchen, and we will supply as much assistance um, for labeling and bulk, um, bulk purchasing of jars or um, ingredients as, as we can. Great. Um, the other piece of it is that sometimes... Farmers want to grow food, and fishermen want to catch fish, and they don't want to have to get involved in processing. (laughs) So we're looking also at um, very small um, micro um, co-packing, where somebody could have 
that sur- those surplus tomatoes have a recipe. They bring us the recipe and um, a certain quantity of tomatoes. We make up a sample. We do a sample run, um, give them a per price, per unit cost for jars of salsa, let's say, and then they contract with us to, um, for us to actually produce, add the value, and um, they can keep on um, growing and they can keep on direct marketing and they don't have to worry about taking over that processing piece. That sounds like a great concept. Uh, Bob, comments on that? You, you're thinking about those kinds of things elsewhere, too. Yeah, well, to get a, to get a sense of, of the, uh, the potential economic development here, I, I encourage people to, next time they're in the local grocery store or supermarket, just take a look at what's on the shelf and, and how many of those products could be purchased with food that we can grow regionally. So there are entire supermarkets full of economic opportunities. We just have to identify what those products are, who the producers are, who's going to produce them, and, and how do we get them uh, you know, to the consumer at a good price and to the producer at a fair price. Great. Will, we're going to let you go. Any final comments as we, as we wrap up your segment of the, of the program? Um, I think I would just say that, as, as Aaron made clear, we've pretty much wiped out entire f- fisheries um, due to market demand. And mm. Maybe it was market demand for for um, food in restaurants, or maybe it was market demand for small pollock that get turned into cat food. Mm. But um, my, I, I believe that if we're going to ever restore any of these um, fisheries or recover any of our lost stocks, that that too will only happen um, if we create market demand or work with the market mechanisms um, to turn things around. So I, I think we need to align our fishing efforts with the biological and ecological forces at work in our waters and then harness the power of the marketplace to um, meet the, the demand for fresh and sustainably produced food from known and trusted sources. Great. Well, you've, you've summed it up very well. Thanks so much for joining us on Talk of the Towns, Will. And thank you for inviting me. Great. Will Hopkins of the Cops Cook Bay Resource Center. And uh, now it's your turn, one uh, 625 9378 or 469-0500. Here on Talk of the Towns, we'd love to have your, your experience, your questions, your um, insights as to um, how we do better at producing, fishing, and buying local and, and uh, sharing those benefits with the local communities. one 625 or 469-0500. I believe we have our first call. Um, we'll wait for Amy to give us the signal, and then we'll go ahead, go ahead with your question or comment, please. Um, hi, um, my name is Jesse, and I'm calling from Verona. Oh, great. And um, one thing that I, I really enjoyed your show today and one thing that I think about a lot, I think about getting local food into local communities here in Maine, um, you know, it's great that people come from out of town to enjoy the seafood here, um, but I think it's, you know, it's hard for people, um, especially people who receive food stamps, we're at a record high in this country and in this state with people who receive food stamps, and um, one of the only places I know where you can get um, seafood is Hannaford, and they don't have any local seafood, um, and I wondered if there was any efforts um, in the state to increase the amount of fish that's available through food assistance programs like that, and I'll go offline and listen them. Great. Thanks for that question. And, and uh, um, we certainly see farmers' markets beginning to think about how they can do a better job of, of accepting food stamps, and I'm not sure if that's the right term anymore, but um, how about with fisheries, Aaron? 
Um, wow, that is a great question. And I, I think that definitely food needs to be available for, for everyone. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a basic, uh, it's a public resource in so many ways. Um, and so we haven't, you know, uh, focused uh, specifically on, um, you know, being able to purchase uh, fish with food stamps, for example. But we are looking at trying to get the greatest diversity possible in the marketplace. And that means the farmers markets, that means community supported agriculture, CSFs, community supported fisheries, um, as well as trying to reach out to the Hannafords, the other, you know, supermarket chains. And so hopefully we can, you know, make seafood accessible for everyone by, you know, branching out, diversifying into all those markets. But um, how's, that, when, how's when, that worked in, in agriculture, uh, Bob? You probably have some sense of how farmers markets, for instance, are, are looking at that question of, of accepting food stamps. Yeah, there, there are uh, farmers market vendors, <clears throat> excuse me, who accept food stamps. Uh, and there are, uh, I know, at least uh, one buying club, uh, the group down in Portland, uh, the co-op down there. Uh, that's one of the things that they do. So they're involved in a buying club, and people who are ordering can use their their uh, food stamps. Um, but it, Aaron makes a good point about uh, the diversity of the marketplace. And if we're really going to boost our local food systems, our local food economies, then the people uh, in those communities have got to be uh, either willing enough to sacrifice in other parts of their of their lives and budgets to to go in for the higher price food. To be mm. honest, it's higher price because it's produced in a, in a different way and it's a different product. Um, but getting getting the, the getting money into into the people's hands who want to buy this food is is crucial. And I, I think one of the uh, one of the lessons learned uh, last year, um, Food for Maine's Future did a pilot buying club to get a to get a sense of of how these operate and what people's interests are. Uh, one of the the obstacles we heard often was we want to buy in bulk. We want to pre-order. We want to get involved in CSAs, but we just don't have the cash on hand to, to you know, to fork over several hundred dollars for some of these programs. Uh, but you know, if there was a, a pool of money, and this gets into the community financing, if there was a pool of money available where people could uh, draw from for these purchases in the spring or in the late winter when the farmers need it. Um, you know, to purchase CSA share, to purchase a portion of an animal, uh, these sorts of things. Uh, and then people can pay back monthly. You can work food stamps into that, I'm sure. Um, but instead of having to fork over six or $700 to get your, your, your fall meat and your vegetables uh, when the farmers need that money, you can spread it out. And so it's more like a utility bill. Mm-hmm. So you're you're now instead of uh, you, you have a different relationship to food in your budget. Mm-hmm. You know, monthly you're making your check out to you know, the phone company, the electric company, to the community food fund mm. for your for your food because so, you've gotten an advance on that. Essentially, right. yeah, it's a and short. The it's or the it's fishermen get that money. Yeah, Short term credit is mm-hmm. what we're talking about. And that mm-hmm. was that was something that that came up with our buying club is mm-hmm. extending it to the people who want to buy the food mm-hmm. because they'll go out and they'll buy it, mm-hmm. uh, and that gets the whole. Uh, chain, uh, the, the, the cycle in motion. one 625 9378 or 469-0500 as we talk about producing, fishing, and buying local. Um, Aaron, one of the things that we wanted to talk a little bit about is the, the some of the efforts that you're making to, mm-hmm. to make those connections between consumers and, and producers of, of fish products. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to just take a step back and talk oh. about some of the sustainable projects that we're doing and then how the consumers are able to support mm-hmm. those projects Great. and really um, the projects 
aren't possible without the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a, that's a major direct link right there. This summer, we're working with five fishermen between Stonington, MDI, uh, Gouldsboro, uh, Millbridge, and Jonesport to go hook fishing in eastern Maine to see if the area can once again support a small-scale ground fishery and also to learn more about the stocks, most importantly, to find out what's going on with the fish. Uh, can we manage them a little bit differently in a way that is more sustainable? And we are intentionally Because traditionally using- these fish are caught with nets and that scoops everything up. You're talking about a more specific fishery using hooks? Is that, is well, that traditionally um, they've used uh, draggers, gill nets, hooks. Um, those three different gear types have been used throughout the fishery right now. It's predominantly draggers. Okay. And we have focused on hooks right now for the summer to start out because we're looking at this as a, a very selective and, and very habitat-friendly gear, especially as we're trying to uh, look at the stocks inshore. And so that is some really interesting work that we're all very excited about. And the fishermen will be selling the fish locally. We're, we're coordinating this effort, and we're actually in the process of establishing an eastern Maine uh, ground fish cooperative. So Again, we're looking at the opportunities like community-supported fishery, which we're doing with shrimp right now, and um, we're looking at uh, farmers markets. We're looking at you know we're interested in farm to schools programs and other sorts of local avenues for food, but ultimately it comes down to these products only these these uh, projects only being viable if they can be if the product can be sold um, at a price that's a little bit higher than uh, fishermen would get through a conventional market. And so just to break that down a little bit, right now most of the fish that's caught in the state, and this is caught from Port Clyde further west, is sold through the Portland Fish Exchange in Portland. And um, even now the shrimp that's caught up in this region, a lot of it that's not sold locally will go to a processor in Portland. So what that means is you've got a high-volume fishery that's returning a low price uh, per pound for the product. And in addition to the, to the lower price that you're getting from that processor or from the dealer, you have to also pay for uh, wharfage, trucking, other expenses that are incurred with moving the product. And that's a pretty significant expense. And so um, we're looking at a different model that instead of being high volume and low price is lower volume and higher price. And we're not talking about a significantly high price. We're talking about something that's comparable to what a consumer would see in the grocery store. But instead of buying something, as you said earlier, that's gone to Boston before it's come back to the region, you're buying something that has a much more direct link and is very fresh locally. So we're encouraging people to get involved with our um, Eastern Maine hook-caught groundfish this summer. Mm. And so where would they, when will they be able to think about that? And when will they um, kind of be able to buy fish, perhaps? Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, Starting in May and going through July, or those are the times that we anticipate the most ground fish being caught in this region. And um, in addition to hooks, some fishermen are also uh, looking at experimenting with traps as, as well. So it's uh, there's some good innovative ideas in the works. Mm-hmm. And so uh, keeping in touch with Penobscot East, and I suppose you'd be doing some marketing um, in local newspapers and local areas to let people know about these opportunities. Absolutely. We have a customer base now of a little over 100 customers with our shrimp community-supported fishery. That's between Blue Hill, Ellsworth, uh, MDI, Deer Isle. And we're looking to expand that um, east and also um, to other markets in the region. And so uh, we will be you know, advertising in, in the local media and also getting the word out through organizations, churches, email listservs, and, and uh, word of mouth and so forth. 
great, and we'll be sure to get contact information for both your organization, uh, Penobscot East Resource Center, as well as uh, Food for Maine's Future at the end of the pr- program. Um, now we're going to go by phone to um, David Bright. Uh, David is the secretary of, of a group that's uh, producing moo milk, and we'll have to get the story from him. Um, we've certainly seen moo milk in the news because it's it's really a, a relatively new product, organic milk uh, sold um, uh, here in Maine. Uh, David, welcome to Talk of the Towns. Thank you. Thank you. Good to talk to you, Ron. And uh, give us give us a, a sense of, of how this all got started. Um, my understanding is that the, um, organic milk was being produced and, and uh, uh, distributed back to Maine, but something broke down somewhere. Well, right. These uh, We're working with 10 farms who uh, were shipping to H.P. Hood, um, which was basically selling some different brands of, of organic milk. They weren't selling under the Hood label, but they had some other labels. And their milk was being picked up and then sh- uh, shipped into New York State and, and bottled there. Um, the, the, the bottom line is that as organic milk got uh, more popular, some of the bigger farmers in New York State said, oh, this makes sense, and they started increasing production of organic milk. And basically Hood uh, said, well, we can get our milk in New York cheaper than we can get it in Maine, because one of the things when they had contracted with these Maine farmers, and they were, these guys, a lot of them are they're down eastern, they're in Aroostook County, so it was a haul. Uh, and Hood had agreed to pay all the shipping, which was wonderful for the farmers, but the, they discovered, well, we can do this cheaper. So mm-hmm. they told these farmers they were going to drop them. Uh, there is only one other producer of organic milk in the state and that's a plant in bangor but it's owned by dean foods and you know they have organic cow i guess in horizon they got a bunch of brands but they um they were not interested in picking these these folks up in aroostook and washington county uh maine farm bureau had been working on a marketing project to help farmers get more stuff into the local stores uh and we it was a project we were getting started, um, and all of a sudden this came up, and we had these farms that were our members and Mofka members, uh, and they needed a market right away. So we got together, Farm Bureau and Mofka got together, um, and we basically de- decided to see what we could do to help them. We got a um, a little bit of, of money from the Department of Agriculture, a $2,000 uh, endowment that, that was controlled by the commissioner, and about another $4,500, which was a contract that the department let with Maine Farm Bureau uh, to help us find a put together a, a package where we could help these guys. And basically that went for legal fees. We ended up setting up what's called an L3C corporation, which we had to go to Vermont to do it. But it basically is a low-profit uh, limited liability uh, corporation, which can have a social purpose. And our social purpose was to help farmers make money by farming. <laughs> Great. Uh, and and uh, that was actually the premise. That's always been the premise of Maine Farm Bureau's uh, farmland preservation program, that if, you, if, you're, if pro- farming is profitable, you don't have to worry about preserving farmland. Mm. And uh, what that does is that lets us be a regular LLC, but it also allows us to get grants and, and actually some investment capital from uh, foundations which normally can only deal with nonprofits, um, and it's a special kind of LLC that that does that. So we we were then off and running. We set up Maine's own organic milk company, Moo Milk, uh, and uh, 
the next step was to try and find where to get this milk processed. Um, the folks in Bangor were not interested in taking us on. Uh, the only other organic processor was Holt, was a um, uh, Smiling Hill Dairy down in in um, uh, in Westbrook. We had talked to Holton Farms, but they just did not have the capacity to do it. They don't didn't have the space. They didn't, you know, they had a very small market, and uh, they, they just couldn't do it. Um, and so Westbrook said, uh, Smiling Hill said, yes, we can do this. Uh, we need to get another machine because they only put up in glass. Uh, we and we needed a distribution model, and uh, so we partnered with both Smiling Hill and with Oakhurst Dairy. Oakhurst, family-owned, largest dairy in the state. Uh, doesn't have an organic product, um, and they're sort of boxed in because they're downtown Portland, so they didn't have the ability to put another line in. Uh, but they did have a they did have a packaging machine, which they um, their investment in the company was to get that uh, machine for the cardboard cartons installed at, at, at Smiling Hill. Um, Smiling Hill did a lot of plumbing to put some extra tanks in and all that. Um, Shoppy Milk Transport out of Holden, Maine, which had been hauling the milk for Hood to New York. Um, was about to lose that run, so he came on board. And um, Oakhurst said that they would also do most of the distribution. And where they so any place that you can buy Oakhurst milk, you can buy uh, Moo milk. And places that Oakhurst doesn't go to are handled by Crown of Maine Organic Co-op. So we started uh, shipping. Uh, we first shipped our milk into Oakhurst as conventional milk, just to keep these guys going while they were while we were building everything. And, and at the end of January, we actually started uh, producing uh, organic milk at the Smiling Hill plant. Um, we don't sell, we can't sell all of our milk as, as organic, so what doesn't get sold as organic, we balance with Oakhurst. But, uh, so uh, you're, you, you're basically keeping a number of organic uh, milk producers in business. Yes, yes. There are, there are 10 farms, uh, and they, are, they range from milking 10 cows to milking about 100 cows. Mm. Um, and there's, there's five in, in the county, there's, there's three down east, one in Penobscot and one in, in Kennebec County. Great. And, and any lessons for other producers? If, if um, organic potato growers wanted to follow a similar model, what, what lessons have you learned in this, this kind of brain, uh, barnstorming kind of tour of, of how to get a milk producer up and running in, in a very short time? Yeah, well, I think potato farmers would actually have a little better go at it, you know, because they don't have the processing issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, Crown of Maine is, is working on a, a project to put another warehouse in Van Buren, I think, which might help on that. Uh, but yeah, w- one of the things we discovered is, uh, you know, first of all, you've got to be, you've got to have the markets. And were it not for Oakhurst, we would not have been able to do that. But but because Oakhurst had, um, you know, had markets, and and uh, those markets understood that actually, um, you know, local is sort of the new organic now. Uh, that most many most people are buying our milk not because it's organic, but because it's local. And they're willing to pay a premium price to do that because they understand they're keeping all the money staying in the state of Maine. Mm. Uh, so that became important. But yeah, you need to have uh, uh, you need to have good partners in marketing. Um, you know, Hannaford also understands the value of local and and uh, was was quick to sign on. They, it is a selling at a premium in Hannaford, but people are in, in, are buying it. Um, and and they understood that we had to make enough money to keep our farmers in business. Um, mm. So we we basically got to set the price at Hannaford, and they said, "Yeah, we can live with that," and and they've priced it accordingly. Uh, but it really was uh, uh, what has to happen is we've all, we're all in this together. 
um, you know, we put MOFCA and Maine Farm Bureau together, and, you know, sometimes those two organizations are at different points of view on, on some issues. Um, we put Smiling Hill and Ochreus together, and those are two Portland-area dairies, which, um, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, are competitors in some ways. Great. Uh, David, I've got to cut you off because we've got a few more comments we want to make locally, but this is a great story. I'm going to figure out a way to, to bring you and perhaps some of the farmers in um, to a future show. Yep, we'd be happy to do that, Ron. Great. Thanks Thanks so much for sharing that uh, story about Maine's own organic milk, David Bright, uh, okay. who's the secretary of that group. We're almost at the end of the hour. We'll probably get a f- couple of phone calls, um, so think about your concluding remarks, and we'll come back to you. Um, we do, I think, have a, f- a phone call, one 625 9378 Brief comment or question. Go ahead, please. Uh, thanks a lot for a great show. I'll keep this as quick as I can. Firstly, um, uh, my wife and I are part of the shrimp uh, co- cooperative thing here in Stonington, and and uh, really think that's great, and hope we could expand that to ground fish and or scallops. That'd be outstanding. Um, the other thing I quickly wanted to touch on, and Ron, maybe this would be something for another show, but um, we we buy a lot of our uh, meat products from a couple of local farms in Penobscot, Quills End and Kings Hill, King Hill, and um, uh, got some unpleasant feedback, uh, really from from uh, Heather at, at Quills End Farm that um, some bright sparks in Augusta are trying to do away with the exemption uh, allowing small farms to process a thousand chickens or less per year and to put them under the draconian um, much bigger farm USDA rules and regulations. Um, the irony here is palpable of course because uh, the reason we buy a place like this is because we don't want to be part of the great E. coli and, and uh, salmonella issues that USDA-governed meat processing plants seem to constantly have problems with. Um, and I wish I could give you more information, but we are offline and have no power here today. I'm a, we're running on a generator, so I, I can't access my email. Um, but this is ongoing right now, and, and small farms in our, areas are, in our area are in danger of... Um, of losing this exemption, they simply cannot afford on a thousand chickens or less to build these fancy high-end processing plants and have two toilets and everything else the USDA uh, requires. We'll see if we can get some comments from our guests and perhaps do a future show. Thanks for your call this morning. Okay, thank you. Uh, Bob St. Peter, uh, thoughts about that? That must be an issue that's faced around the state. Yeah, we've been, excuse me, we've been following this closely. Uh, There's going to be a public hearing next Wednesday, March 3rd at 1 o'clock uh, in the Cross Building in Augusta uh, on this matter. Uh, and, and I'm so so glad he, he brought this up because it's this goes back to my opening comments about who gets to write the rules for our communities. And, and uh, farms are great places for economic development and bringing people together in the community. Uh, and this is this particular rule uh, law is one of those that can uh, help small-scale producers uh, earn income, stay on the farm, diversify their farms. And so we're really encouraging people to come to the public hearing and send their comments uh, in support of the original legislation and not the Department of Ag's rules that mm-hmm. were more restrictive. And balancing that, um, we want safe food. So how do we ma- making sure right. that people uh, feel comfortable with those local local products? Well, I'll give each about a minute to, to uh, kind of wrap up. Um, uh, Aaron, first, uh, your kind of concluding remarks and, and include your uh, contact information if you could. Sure. Thanks, Ron. Um, so I'll start with our contact information. You can find us online at uh, penobscoteast.org. 
You can reach us at uh, 367-2708, and my email address is Aaron, that's A-A-R-O-N, at penobscoteast.org. be happy to talk to anyone um, about more of this information, but I just want to reiterate how important uh, the direct connection is between the consumer and the fisherman to really make uh, to carry out the vision of our work and make everything successful uh, both this summer and in the long term. Great. Thank yeah. you. And Bob St. Peter? And I would second that, that, that it comes down to relationships and our willingness to work together. Uh, and uh, our website's foodformainsfuture.org. Later this afternoon, we'll have information about the hearing on Wednesday if people want to get more info on that. And you have a conference coming up. Just give us that information. Yep. April 10th and 11th in Lewiston is our fifth annual local sustainable food conference. The theme is Building Urban, Urban Rural Alliances. There's info on our website about that, too. Great. Well, I want to take this opportunity to thank our, our guests in the studio, but also thank the listeners who make this all possible. We've been in partnership, I say we, University of Maine Cooperative Extension, since about 1990. And um, uh, we now produce uh, the Talk of the Town shows. We used to do Family Radio Forum, and uh, Jane Haskell does Doing Business. We couldn't do this without your support. And um, starting tomorrow, you'll have the opportunity to pledge your support for this wonderful radio experiment that's been going on for 20 years years plus, and I hope that you'll take the opportunity to donate generously. We want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With Office of the County, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley for, from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks to our guests in the studio, Aaron Doherty of Penobscot East Resource Center, Bob St. Peter, Food for Maine's Future, Will Hopkins, Cobbs Cook Bay Resource Center, and David Bright of Maine's or, own organic um, milk. Um, thanks to our underwriters, and thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. Stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from the Belfast Co-op March Eat Local Challenge, featuring the Starting Your Garden Talk with Gene English, editor of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners publication, on Tuesday, March 9th at 6.30 p.m. at the Belfast Free Library. Information at 338-3884. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill. It is time now for our required weekly test of the emergency alert system. This is just a test. Let's bite the bullet and ask ourselves whether, long-term, Afghanistan is going to survive anyway. Whether it has the DNA of enduring nation-statehood. That is anthropologist, author, former Foreign Service officer, and four-decade observer of Afghanistan, Whitney Atoy, speaking at the 2010 Camden Conference, whose theme this year was Afghanistan.